when obviously when the parties change and if the party if a democrat is elected president the two sides will flip-flop but that's just an element of american democracy and why we are so vulnerable to this propaganda stuff and that's why we have podcasts to fight that propaganda hey we should uh <laughs> we should get you in like a marketing position right <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> Just give me the tools. <laughs> I don't know. I, I guess maybe I'm not quite as convinced it'll flip as hard. I mean, it depends on who the Democratic nominee is. But for the most part, everyone who is being taken seriously right now and, and assuming that we would get an actual politician and not, you know, Dwayne The Rock Johnson or something. Um, <laughs> Come on, he can jump off buildings and jump into skyscrapers. I saw that guy. And in yeah. one leg. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Orientalist Express podcast. On this show, we bring together several young scholars to discuss a variety of topics related to the Middle East, American foreign policy, and international relations. Our goal is to make American foreign policy easy to understand and relevant for people who don't normally follow it too closely. I'm Nicholas Hayen, the founder of the Orientalist Express blog and website. Joining us today in the virtual studio are a few of our usual contributors. We have Stephen Howard... I don't have a coffee this time. Oh, well. And Valida Azamatova. God bless you, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Be sure to check out the official Orientalist Express website at orientalistexpress.com to read more about the team. So the international community is pretending to care about the Olympics that are happening this month. But behind the scenes, there is a lot of drama going on. In particular, the tension between North and South Korea. Though both nations are trying to act unified and cordial, even going so far as to participate as a unified team, the games are overshadowed by a period of very high tensions between the United States and North Korea. So what can be done, if anything, to reduce tensions in the region? And more broadly, do these uh, seemingly frivolous events like the Olympics actually have a meaningful impact on international relations, or are they just filler to make us all feel good? What do you guys think? You know, I actually don't think that they have too much to do with anything. Everyone's going to put on their happy faces. Everyone's going to go and they're going to be nice to each other for a little bit. Kim Jong, whatever her name is, is going to be a nice person to the rest of the world so that everyone goes, oh, that North Korea, they're not that bad. And the games are going to end and there are going to be still mass atrocities in North Korea. There's going to still be... um millions of koreans with worms throughout their entire bodies like that one uh guy who defected from north korea just a little while ago so i see the olympics is a great place to you know build your soft power but it's not a place where anyone's going to actually make any concessions make any changes i think the most notable thing at the olympics during this time is the visible thawing of relations that it shows between them at these games at least and there's no reason for the Republic of Korea to do that sort of thaw of relations other than basically telling the Trump administration, you are creating a situation where we see our interests as divided from you, and we will pursue our own diplomatic path with North Korea, which is admittedly one of your favorite issues. So it's drawing a bunch of lines 
through the international community, I don't believe it's actually bringing anyone together. Yeah, that that's a good point, Stephen. I also think that these games and um, just this whole talk about unification is primarily symbolic and in front of all of the other countries and just in the international arena. I don't think that South Korea, its true aim is reunification. And I think North Korea thinks that South Korea is mostly trying to conquest. But in reality, I think that South Korea just doesn't want uh, neither an attack or a unification. Because if the North Korean regime would uh, collapse all of a sudden, it would present the South Koreans with a sudden and massive humanitarian catastrophe. I mean, imagine how much responsibility that would be. So I think that... Um, Particularly for younger South Koreans, I think they're more worried about the economic toll that would that the country would bear, and not because of the um, increased commitment to anti-communism or uh, Stalinism. Um, I think it's mostly they're thinking in economic factors. Yeah, I think Felita is completely right that that's if there is any sort of unification, it's a, in a peaceful terms and. I don't believe that the West or at least the United States would even accept those peaceful terms because the peaceful terms, if uh, Kim Jong-un is a rational actor and his goal is regime survival, that would imply that whatever political agreement North and South came to, the Uns would still be in power in some way, shape or form, which is inconceivable to the West. It's just not something that would happen. So there's there's no winning here. They're both interested in that idea of regime security. And so, of course, the North can't survive in a unified nation. And the South, kind of like you said, Valida, can't necessarily survive as it currently is with mm -hmm. a massive influx of so many people who are so far below the poverty line and have no idea how to even use so much of the technology that is pervasive in South Korea. So I do definitely agree with both of you that this is pretty much for show. Um, but I guess I want to come at this from the perspective of people who aren't necessarily following it too closely. Um, then why? Why even bother with all of this nicety and pretending to get along and everything? You know, why put up with the charade if we all know that in a month after the games are over, it's just going to go right back to where it was before? Because you have to, I guess. Honestly, I mean, what else? What else is there to do? Well, You're who, trying to increase who says, your thoughts. Who says you have to? I mean... If uh, someone didn't tell Trump to say otherwise, which is kind of surprising that he is still going along with this charade, because usually he's the first one to blow it up, but wouldn't him or some of his supporters kind of step in and say, why are we doing this? This is just silly and stupid. We all know it's it's just going to blow up in smoke later. Well, and I'm sure that at some point he probably has said that to an aide or two, and he has probably said something to the effect of, why are we even working with those damn whatever whatevers? And I, I can't do the Trump voice. I'm sorry. I'm not going to try. <laughs> but it's it's really a function of soft power. So at least some people in the White House and across the rest of the world's political, um, I guess, classes realize that it is not all about reality. It is about or objective reality. It is to a large extent subjective reality that you are working on here and working on framing. So it is not the fact that North Korea is not going to change. I think most 
people who understand the situation know North Korea is not going to change. But the masses don't know that. The regular people don't know that. So North Korea can still go out there and put on a happy face and make it look like they are changing to the rest of the world or that they are better than what they actually are to the rest of the world. And if the United States comes off as the big hulking bully that's picking on poor little North Korea, they've just achieved their aims. So we need to play at least, if not nice, at least ambivalent. And I mean, don't we all want world peace? Isn't that what we all talk about all the time? That longing for world peace. And of course we put all these charades and shows because that's what formally and ideally we would want in the world. But like Steven said, realistically, um, that's nearly impossible. And again, the United States is always involved in this. And where would this end game leave the United States? I think that's what our listeners would really want to uh, hear about. And personally, I do think that there's this huge mistrust from North Korea and that's exactly why it built its nuclear deterrent in the first place, because of since the collapse of the Soviet Union, it had every single reason to believe that um, the United States would seek uh, any conflict with force. And it's kind of like a shield for them. But if we would consider the United States away from the field, let's say it's abandoned completely from this um, issue, we can go immediately to China. I feel like Beijing would definitely think about um, more of taking South Korea's side. It would put the value of the alliance with North Korea to zero, if not lower. And I think that Beijing's primary goal would be to convince South Korea to become their partner without alarming Japan. And um, yeah, I guess that's my thoughts so what? far. I want to push back a little bit on the idea that um, they wouldn't have developed uh, nuclear weapons as a deterrent if it wasn't for the United States, because yeah. the United States was, uh, I, I don't want to say actively pushing for their downfall, but the United States was there between the peace agreement in, what was it, 1950-something, and up to the point where they got nuclear weapons just in, what was it, 2004? So that's a long time, maybe 60, 50 years or so, that they didn't have nuclear weapons and they weren't invaded. Um, and I think a large extent to that is the understanding that China is their main deterrent, not so much nuclear weapons, but uh, China and the ability to use conventional artillery to inflict massive civilian casualties on South Korea which then leads you to the idea or the um, question that has nuclear weapons actually made their situation more stable or has it made their uh, deterrence more effective? Because I think you you started seeing a lot more cause for invading North Korea in 2004 when they started working on those nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. Everyone started at that point saying we have to go in there now to take out nuclear weapons. There is no reason for us not to. They're not just some pariah anymore. They're a pariah with teeth. And so I, I don't think that the development of nuclear weapons was particularly as a deterrence or a deterrence against the United States at that point. I, I think it was a little bit more of aggrandizement. They're trying to make themselves look more powerful in the international, I guess, sphere or something to that extent. If it was a 
if it honestly was a movement for deterrence, I think it was a completely failed one. I don't think that that has helped their deterrence factor at all. Yeah, so actually I kind of wanted to back up just a little bit to um, how this this plays to the everyday person who is not necessarily versed in international relations. Um, And more specifically, definitely this type of uh, pretend cooperation plays to the base of each person to, to the to the base of each country essentially so south korea they want to believe that at least in theory there could be some great peaceful reunification and the north is of course going to look at that and go see look they're actually treating us like equals we we're, we are powerful the regime is strong and see we we have your backs um of course the flip side of that is that north korea is well versed in propaganda so if they weren't getting along and we did actually just kick North Korea out entirely, they'd say, well, see, look at that. That's just the imperialist United States being awful again and being a bully, treating us like we're nobody. So they're very good at propaganda in both ways. Um, I guess insofar as deterrence theory goes, um, so I guess I want to back up just a little bit and provide a quick overview of deterrence theory for um, any listeners who aren't well-versed in it. Um, which we have actually covered it a few times, so hopefully you would know by now. But essentially deterrence theory being that you have this thing, in this case nuclear weapons, that um, you have this so it deters people from attacking you, from destroying you, essentially. And that's the foundation of the Cold War, essentially, that both the United States and the Soviet Union had nuclear weapons. They could each annihilate each other, and so each was deterred from attacking the other because nobody wants to have global thermonuclear conflict. I guess I'm not quite sure where I stand on how nuclear weapons has helped or hurt the North Korean regime regarding deterrence. Um, I guess I'd be more inclined to say that it has helped a little bit, because at the very least now um, you know that you can't invade North Korea at all without risking nuclear war. I guess I would kind of agree with Stephen that the overall effect of that is a little bit muted since you already weren't going to attack North Korea. I guess what what do you where do you place North Korea in the grand spectrum of things that the United States needs to worry about? Because weren't you talking about General Mattis um, sort of changing the focus of the United States to be those grand power conflicts? Yeah, and that's so. What we were talking about earlier today was that uh, for the listeners who obviously weren't there, but uh, <laughs> we were talking about General Mattis has, or I should say, uh, Mister Mattis has determined that the United States should focus on great power competition moving into the future, and that should be where the United States kind of focuses all of its energy, or the majority of its energy. One of the side effects of focusing all that energy on great power conflict is that you cannot get sucked into conflicts of choice, of of what they're called. So conflicts where they are not, not Syria, they're not Iraq, they're not North Korea. Because that will take away power in a non-vital area from a great power competition. So you cannot deal with North Korea because that takes away... Oh gosh, could you imagine? We have been in Afghanistan for 15 years. Could you imagine how long we would have to be in North Korea? And how much political, military, and economic will would be zapped from the United States for the next 20-30 years if we invaded North Korea? You cannot invade and you cannot start a conflict with North Korea with General Mattis's focus and ostensibly the U.S. government's focus on great power competition. So my question was really 
then what is the U.S. policy towards North Korea if we are at the same time saying China is going to be our main focus. We're not going to be able to focus on smaller conflicts like North Korea. And then the White House saying, yeah, but we might think we, we, we might cause a bloody nose in North Korea. And I'll, I'll leave it to uh, Nick to explain kind of what a bloody nose is there. Yeah, so um, the, the bloody nose theory, and that's um, something that's been uh, coming up recently in the last couple of weeks or months, is essentially that theory that um, you want to prove your worth and demonstrate that you really are um, capable of doing anything. And so it would be a very limited strike somewhere on a North Korean target to you know, essentially give them a bloody nose, to not not destroy them entirely and not seriously cripple them, but to just um, in some small way show them that we mean business. Of course, I think that that is insanely idiotic, and that's probably the harshest words I'll ever use in this podcast, but um, think of it as two people, two enemies who are, you know, drunk at a bar and they're getting in each other's faces and you just, you know, something's about to happen. What do you think is going to happen when one just punches the other one? The other one isn't going to sit back and go, oh man, you know, you're right. I, I, <laughs> I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. I'm going to completely back off. No, they are going to get in an all out brawl. And that is exactly what you can expect to happen if we were to go through with this quote-unquote bloody nose strike. Which again then goes right back to if we can't even do that, and that is what the, um, uh, I was about to say Bush administration, it's not the Bush administration, what the Trump administration is advocating, and actually they have uh, taken away, we don't have, by the way, for all our listeners out there, we still don't have an ambassador to South Korea. All this is happening, and East Asia is so absolutely important right now, and we don't have an ambassador to South Korea. We were going to have an ambassador to South Korea, but he objected to the strategy. And this guy is a North Korea hawk. But he said, no, you know what? The, the bloody nose is an insanely idiotic strategy, to quote what Nick said. And we're not. if, if you do this, I'm not going to join your administration. They went, all right, well, there's the door. Okay, so you have two completely contrary strategies and approaches to the East Asia now. One from the White House and one from the DOD. What are we going to do there? What is the actual U.S. policy towards North Korea going to be? I think that just for our listeners, like, nobody wants war, people. This is the most important things to keep in mind. The North Koreans' government's main goal is just survival, and I think that direct conflict with the U.S. would seriously jeopardize it. And uh, I think it would just be suicidal, honestly, on both sides. And that's why North Korea has been trying so hard to become a nuclear armed power. Uh, second of all, um, what, when we're um, seeing everything on the news, these are all just words. They're not actions. When President Trump is threatening North Korea with language uncommon for a U.S. president, this doesn't mean that the U.S. is actually moving onto a war because I know that a lot of people would panic by reading all these news. It's just words. We don't really have anything going on. Stephen, do you were you were talking about it earlier? Were you um were we even doing anything towards North Korea? We do have actions that are pointed at North Korea at this time and you can take the ostensible uh sacking of the who was going to be the South Korean um ambassador because of his opposition to invasion sure. to North Korea. And so that is one explicit factor saying, hey, the White House does, in fact, 
favor a aggressive and maybe military approach towards North Korea. We also have the most, I believe it might not be the case right now. I should check my, I should check my naval maps, but we had about three carrier groups in that uh, area, which is, I guess I don't know how to emphasize how much power a carrier group has, just one carrier group. We usually have one carrier group in that area, one carrier group in the eastern or in the Mediterranean, one carrier group in the mm-hmm. Pacific or the Pacific on um, the Indian Ocean, because that is enough to take down any fleet on Earth. One carrier group is yeah. more powerful than any navy on Earth. We have three carrier groups assembled around North Korea right now. What does that say about U.S. military posture? And as for the kind of the words as well, I I think this gets lost that we are dealing with, I, I, I do believe to some extent Kim Jong-un is rational, but I think to a large extent he is not understanding of the U.S. rationality in this game either. The U.S. is also not understanding of Kim Jong-un's rationality. So if you believe the other actor believes that you are um, irrational, you have to attack at some point. If if the United States honestly, or the United States government honestly believes that Kim Jong Un is irrational, and the only way to deter him is to send off some missiles and destroy Pyongyang, they're gonna do it. And it's that that's a consequence of those words, and it's a consequence of the mentality of the president of the United States. And these words can get misinterpreted. I mean, hell, I don't even know what the president's saying half the time. I don't expect someone in North Korea to understand what he's saying. What's what's that going to lead to? Yeah, I um, actually wanted to highlight something that you said, Stephen, which was that um, to just remember the consequences of going to war. I mean, the very fact that we are still involved in Afghanistan and how much of a resource drain that has been on this country. And then you magnify that by the scope of the entirety of North Korea. That's insane. I mean, we would... our global influence worldwide would be completely um, sidetracked by this sort of endeavor. Um, But fortunately, I think that as intense as three carrier groups are, um, that is still just posturing to some level. If you were to see massive troop mobilizations of American troops into South Korea, then that that could definitely be even more uh, concerning. Um, But I guess on the kind of on the long-term trajectory, I think that where North Korea fits in in that sort of General Mattis type of plan with great power conflict is essentially the status quo, right? Because, I mean, even before North Korea had the ability to strike the United States with nuclear weapons, it was essentially to try to maintain the status quo. And I can't imagine that changing now that even though there's conflicting reports about whether or not North Korea can actually strike the United States, North Korea essentially can. Or if they can't, they will be able to very, very soon, to the point where we'd be far too late to stop that even now, even if we acted right this moment. So part of me thinks that really we're just going to be at maintaining the status quo for a very long time. We are losing our position in East Asia in general due to the Belt and Road Initiative because we have no way to combat it and we haven't come up with a plan to combat it. In fact, we're letting China do willy-nilly what they want in the South China Sea. You may want to and, uh, explain quickly what that is. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative for China is a... Oh, gosh. The road is... It, it is a economic plan 
for China to expand their, um, I guess, economic reach, I should say, to a whole bunch of other countries. It is, I don't know if the Silk Road rings any bells for a lot of people out there, but it's a recreation of the Silk Road, which would allow China to have more, I guess, uh, economic ties with the stands, uh, East, uh, West Asia, and Eastern Europe. And then also there is a maritime element of this going around through the Indian Ocean out to uh, Western Europe and basically creating more economic ties to benefit um, China and, I guess, invest in infrastructure and kind of the China votus, uh, modus vivendi. But it's but we don't have a way to combat that. We don't. Our way to combat that was the TPP, uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which we at, which with vocal Democratic support, President Trump vetoed, and it's just one of those problems where we don't have any way to combat them economically or influentially, so we are losing our position throughout all of East Asia to China, and China is creating a sphere of influence in that area, and. What do we do when we see our our position degrading? So let's move on to Russia. Russia has also been a point of controversy in the latest Olympic Games. Their team has been completely banned from participating due to Russia's role in a massive state-run doping scandal. However, athletes have been able, who have been proven to be clean are able to participate as Olympic athletes from Russia, but without flying the Russian flag. As is always the case when Russia meddles in something, the government is completely denying the whole scandal. Sound familiar? So has this ban really hurt the standing of Russia, or is this just another area where Russia essentially got away with it? I've been following... Uh, the news and comparing kind of how American newspapers and Russian newspapers are covering this issue. And surprisingly today when I was going into reading some Russian newspapers about how they're feeling about the whole ban, I was thinking that they were right saying that the whole world is against Russia and this is a war against them. But surprisingly, the media is covering everything pretty well and um, not in a negative form. A lot of Russian people are saying that they're very proud of their athletes. And even though they're serving under the neutral flag, they're very proud and still take it close to their heart thinking that they're representing the you know, Russian Federation. Um, as I was reading some American newspapers, a lot of them kind of say that um, this is very emotional for Russia and uh, this is a huge war against them through this sport. But uh, to be honest, I think that at first when the news broke down in Russia about their ban, it was pretty emotional. But uh, soon after, um, half of the athletes have chose to represent um Russia under the neutral flag, I think everything has calmed down and they've become more strategic and now they're proud of their athletes that are getting gold and, um, you know, bronze medals. So I think that's just a really interesting perspective on how they're covering this issue in the newspapers and in the media. What do you guys think? I think that this is the New England Patriots getting away with one. 
<laughs> I think that this is the this is the epitome of a state-run cheating ring, and then the Patriots don't get to go on to compete, but the other Patriots that happen to be from New England get to go on and compete, and it's well, yeah, they're the same guys. They're just the, they're the practice squad. What are you talking about? These are the same people. And I think that if, if you were going to ban Russia, ban Russia. But I, I, I don't see the purpose of this, and I don't see the point of what it was, and I don't think that – I don't think anyone came back better because of the IOC's decision. Yeah, I, I think it doesn't help that they kind of flip-flopped a little bit, right? So they started out with, well, it's basically a full ban. There's almost no one who's going to be able to participate. And then they walked it back and said, well, you know, there's – there's a lot of people who actually could participate. That's totally fine. And so they really kind of um, lost some of the power of that band initially. Um, I guess, I mean, I kind of agree, right? Like they did essentially get away with it. But to that extent, doesn't it kind of also show that Russia is fully capable of doing these types of things, of not just um, sort of cheating at whatever it is they're trying to get away with, but then also this disinformation campaign and how effective it is, does it at least sort of highlight that they are very good at this sort of propaganda and disinformation? Oh, 100%. They're super good at it. It is. Uh, but I've heard the nice uh, kind of phrase about it. If you say something enough and you yell it loud enough, then everyone will start to think maybe he has a point. And that's what Rush is doing. They, oh, the Western is this, the Western is the Western, and they say it enough, they yell it loud enough, people start to be, believe it. And the biggest thing is it's wrapped in a small kernel of truth. So if you're able to digest that small kernel of truth, you will also take the lion with it. And they're really, really adept at that. Bill Belichick, I'm just saying. Well, then how do you stop that sort of thing? I think that the uh, United States people will let you know when they figure out how to do it themselves. <laughs> I don't know. I think that um, the reason why they didn't do the complete ban was because it was definitely hurting those athletes that were clean and were not in the scandal because it doesn't necessarily assume that all of them were using doping and etc. But at the same time, it was an attempt to isolate and weaken Russia. That's how they are interpreting it. And... Um, it's not helping to international relations at all because this is clearly connected to the relations between the United States and America as well. Um, the Russian people are saying that, um, again, people are against our culture, our lifestyle, our history, and now sports since we're constantly being hearing that we're doing everything wrong. And I don't know. I think it's just get worse from here. I don't see any improvement, honestly. In the relationship. So, Salida, in your research, does it sound like pretty much everyone in Russia fully believes that the entire doping thing is, um, well, for lack of a better word, just a witch hunt? Completely made Oh, yeah. oh completely, yeah. Uh, like I'm saying, people are already showing evidence to the Russians that they're, they've been caught. Like, you've been using this, but Russia still denies that, and they still think they're clean, that this is just a war game against them. This is an attempt to uh, isolate us, go against us, just this whole propaganda going thing. But uh, yeah, I completely say that this was um, just a rejection of the truth. Um, but I guess 
my thought is so there was a program way back during the cold war where the united states would attempt to counter soviet propaganda as it was filtering into the united states do you think that there is any way to sort of resurrect a similar type of program or do we have essentially no chance of doing it when the person at the head of the administration is essentially pretending that it does it doesn't exist at all i think that yes on both counts so we have we did have that a very strong propaganda if you want to call it that or a information campaign going on throughout the cold war kind of trying yes. to uh counter a lot of the soviet union's points and since the soviet union's demise we have really let that atrophy and we have let that uh i guess just wither on the vine and that's not saying we couldn't bring it back but it's going to require a massive amount of resources and a very focused congress and executive branch and that is not something we're going to get with a russophile in the white house because he doesn't see it as a problem he sees oh look what putin did he, he was he was that brazen oh that's awesome i should go high five that guy no, when you guys are talking about propaganda, are you guys referring to Russia spreading its propaganda in the United States or just in their own country? I think both. Um, like you have RT is a very good example of it where it spreads in and out of the country and is very influential because they are seen as a pretty good uh, or a <laughs> at least in some spheres as a reputable source of news. And they're able to tilt the news just enough. Yeah, I, I agree with both, actually. That I think both of those are considered the types of propaganda that I'm talking about. But do Americans really follow it? Do they really believe that propaganda that's in the United States? I mean, I've seen a couple of polls that said that they've had some poor views of Russia. A lot of Americans, actually. How would, I mean, that be connected to their opinion and their, um, I guess, their belief in this propaganda spread by Russia. Well, I I hate to get too politically charged about it, but sure. there's, a, there's a subsection of this country that if the president just repeats that propaganda, they'll just believe it 100%, full stop, doesn't matter what anyone else says. So, um, and I know a lot of other people generally are um, susceptible to that sort of thing as well to mm -hmm. you know just believing what they see and not actually checking it with verified sources but um i think that that particular subsection of the country is even more um susceptible to that simply because if the president says it it's that's the truth oh yeah definitely and i, I actually think it's a uh, element of the democratic uh, democratic function of partisanship and what's frankly become hyper-partisanship hyper in the United States, where, and I, I don't think it's just the Republicans, I think it's the Democrats too, and the whether it be the moderates or the wings of both sides are willing to look at that one article which was sent out by, what is this, RT.com, I've never heard of RT.com, but they're saying what I want to hear, so I'm going to retweet this, I'm going to share this on my Facebook page, and that's kind of what's happening. Um, and, and that's not to say that, you know, that the Democrats aren't capable of that, too. It's just that they don't have that central figure that 
they're all looking to that's like, this is the person who's speaking the truth. That doesn't seem to exist right now. No, but in some ways that's worse because there is a, it, it's kind of like the uh, conflict of the religion with a central figure and the religion without a central figure. The religion with a central figure, that lead person lies to you and the rest of everyone else in that religion basically touts that lie as truth. In the non-central one, a lie gets start spreading in that religion and there's no in the combat. It, it just kind of hangs there and it stays there and multiple ones are able to infiltrate multiple different sects and there's nothing to actually expunge it from that organization. And that's what kind of the democratic field has right now. And that's it for this episode of the Orientalist Express podcast. I'd like to thank our guests, Stephen and Valida, for their insight and analysis, as well as our listeners and readers of the blog. Be sure to check out our website at orientalistexpress.com, like and share on our Facebook group, or tweet us at orientalistexp. Our podcast is now available on Stitcher and iTunes, so subscribe to our RSS feed, which is hosted by Squarespace. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.